We need to confront the reality of what's been called China's brute force economics. We have to face up to the fact that we're not simply in competition with China, we're in a war. If you take out the, the sector that we are the best at, there's really three sectors that we're pretty good at. One is biopharmaceuticals, the second is aerospace, and the third is software, AI, Google, Amazon, cloud services, all those information services. If you take out the information services sector where we're dominant, we have about 38% of the global market, we go down to about 8.5. Our auto sector's about half of the global average. Our machines and electronics are about half of the global average. People don't realize how much we followed out our advanced industries. I think I read that China has more billionaires than we do. Oh yeah, the Chinese, they, they say they're communists. It's not like communism the way the Soviets were, which was the apparatchiks made had, had a nice car. Yeah. They don't mind billionaires as long as you're doing the business of advancing state power. The Alibaba billionaire, as Jack Ma started to say some things that the CCP didn't like, and, and he was punished, and everybody knew he was punished, and that was the signal. Don't criticize the CCP. And otherwise, we'll let you make as much money as you can. At the same time, I do think we need to limit investment in critical infrastructure and technologies in China. That's very different than selling stuff that we make here and we want to sell to China. It's very different than investing in an advanced factory in China. That we have to really be thinking carefully about. But you need people thinking about that who know a lot about the technology, how things are manufactured, what the supply chains are. You need somebody who's been in business or in technology to really understand that. And the problem I think we've got is we've got very few people here in Washington that have a clue. The United States has fallen well behind China and many other countries in our global share of key technology sectors. Our position in high value products and services has fallen so dramatically that we now rank just above Italy and behind Mexico in the critical areas where the United States faces $250 billion trade deficit. These facts, these facts matter a lot. Uh, the Chinese Communist Party sees technology innovation as the main battlefield of its industrial policy and its ultimate weapon in achieving global dominance. Uh, it's well past the time for the United States to abandon the possibility that competing on a level playing field with China is possible. We need to confront the reality of what's been called China's brute force economics. We have to face up to the fact that we're not simply in competition with China, we're in a war. Welcome to the Bill Walton Show. I'm Bill Walton. Joining me today to explore these troubling trends is my returning guest and friend Robert D. Atkinson, Rob is founder and president of the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation. He founded it in 2006, and it's now considered the world's top think, think, think tank for science and technology policy. Rob, welcome. Bill, it's great to be back. Yeah. Well, you said, this was, you said recently, we're not only below the global average, we're moving in the wrong direction. We've become almost a developing nation. Pretty shocking. So what what that study refers to is uh, seven key industries that every country has to 
especially a, a big country like us, have to be good at things like aerospace, uh, biotechnology, computing, semiconductors, uh, machines, machine tools, things like that. And if you add all that up and say, what share of our economy do those industries make up in terms of their sales or their output? And you compare that to the rest of the world, 85% of the GDP in the rest of the world that we can track, we're at about 0.95. So, so in other words, we're below average, mm -hmm. 5% below average. China's 35% above average. Germany's 60%. They're 35% above? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Is there anybody else, any other country remotely comparable to that? Oh, yeah. There's a few that are better than China. Okay. Uh, so Taiwan. All right. Well, because of yeah. semiconductors and Korea. But they're pretty, they're doing, you know, China's doing very, very well. Um, we, on the other hand, uh, if you, and, and what's interesting about that number, if you take out the, the sector that we are the best at, uh, there's really three sectors that we're pretty good at. One is biopharmaceuticals. We still invent and make drugs. The second is aerospace, which is a shorthand for Boeing, world's top uh, passenger jet maker. And the third is software, AI, uh, Google, Amazon, cloud services, all, all those information services. If you take out the information services sector where we're dominant, we have about 38% of the global market, uh, we go down to about 0.85. So our auto sector is about half of the global average. Our machines and electronics are about half of the global average. People don't realize how much we've hollowed out our advanced industries. Well, the part of the problem is our our thinking about this, and and I I say this as a recovering unilateral free trader, free market guy. Let the market decide who's going to win and who's going to lose, and you'll get the best allocation of resources, and everybody will thrive. Well, that hasn't happened, and. What's happened is if by, by not being selective about what industries we want to uh, support as a country, we, we've let it all go to, we've let the critical stuff go to China. And they don't think the way we think about free markets. They don't have free markets. Period. And what people confuse them, well, they, they must be top-down Soviet gas plan planners. No, they're not that. Yeah. They, they understand, they put this sort of, magic connection together where they allow their companies a lot of freedom but it's constrained <clears throat> if you're going in the direction of the party of the communist party you get a lot of freedom and you get a lot of money uh, so they're way smarter than the soviets were and we we have to recognize that the other key point there is they don't look at this as Ricardian free trade, you know, David Ricardo, you know, we specialize in this and you specialize in that. Comparative we, advantage. Yeah. It was 101. Yeah. <laughs> they, they look at it as absolute advantage for yeah. every major industry. That is their goal. And if you read their documents, it's straight up there. We want to be the global leader in every single one of these technologies. And global leading leader means crushing the competitors. And they do support i think you wrote that huawei gets some 75 billion dollars yeah that's stunning <clears throat> that was a wall street journal article that showed that they had received 75 billion dollars think about that our the chips act we passed <clears throat> which i think we should have done i'm glad we did it because every other country but particularly china china's put in around 200 billion dollars in subsidies for chip factories so we put in 50 which is great there'll be probably 
I don't know how many, 40 companies that are competing for that. So, you know, maybe they're getting a billion, two billion, three billion. One company in China, 78 billion. How do you compete with that? Well, so far, we're not. Right. That is, that is, <laughs> that's, that's the issue. So what are the industries that, they, that they've achieved the dom most dominant sense? So the study just came out recently. They have 20 times more shipbuilding capacity than we do. Wow. So think about if, if we're in a war. And the first thing that's going to happen in a war over Taiwan are going to be ships sinking, uh, as, as awful as that is. And it, part, of the, who, part of who survives is who can replace their ships. They'll replace their ships much more than we do. Um, 20 years ago, they had almost no shipbuilding industry. Uh, the major shipbuilders were Japan and Korea. They've, I don't want to say decimated their shipbuilding industry, but they shrank it very much. Japan and Korea decimated theirs. No. Japan and Korea were the leaders in the 2000s. Okay, all right, then China's come on. And then China came on from almost nowhere to now being the global dominant. Don't they have that one shipyard that that, that produces as much as all, all of our shipyards yeah. combined? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, just one. So they've done that one. Uh, High-speed rail is another one. They had almost no high-speed rail, and their strategy was, we're going to build the world's largest high-speed rail network, but if you want to sell to us, you have to transfer and give us your technology. Lo and behold, you had a few companies that were mm, hungry enough for short-term profits, shall we say, that they made the deal with the devil. And now they have uh, their, their big giant monopoly, what's called CRRC, China Rail Company, has 70% of the global market. I'm curious, what's the key technologies that make for high-speed rail? It's a combination of things. Uh, it's the it's the actual uh, uh, way the motors are designed. Okay. Um, but it's also the ability to design uh, the the wheels and the track system so you can go 250 miles an hour and not derail. Electronic systems that support all of that. So, so to your point, I think what your point is, these are technologies that aren't just very narrow. They have they have that, yeah, that was my effect. question. Yeah. yeah, this is applicable to yeah. a lot of other Absolutely. things. Absolutely. What, what, we, what we would call dual-use technologies. They have a commercial use, but they have a military. And given military. China's geographical size, having high-speed rails is a huge edge if they can get that in place. They have it in place. And it's it, the way the North won the Civil War. Well, yeah, you can move your troops. That's why the North won, because we had rail. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So they, they've done that. They've, uh, same thing, we, we talked about Huawei. Um, they have the global, uh, and it's funny because President Trump um, tried to slow down Huawei with, with export controls, uh, and it was a good intention, but Huawei has the same global market share of 5G telecom equipment today than they did before the controls. Quick thumbnail, what does Huawei produce? Because a lot of us don't really follow it that closely. What are, what are their so what Huawei, are their when they were at their peak before the export, they they were essentially the general electric of the new era. So they made everything. Mm -hmm. They made their core business was telecom equipment. So uh, you know when you when you get your cell phone and it connects to a tower, they would make the tower and the electronics for all of that and sell it all around the world. But they made laptops. They made uh, consumer devices. They made phones. Uh, they were really in, into everything. But their main business. Um, Really, the core business is telecom equipment. And the worry with Huawei was that equipment wouldn't be secure, that, that there are back doors in it. 
So we banned Huawei equipment in the U.S., which was the good thing, and then we tried to put these export controls. Had no effect mm-hmm. on them. Uh, the only effect was that American companies lost sales. So we didn't cripple Huawei uh, with regard to telecom equipment. They, they have the same market share today than they had. And, and ZTE, the other competitor, actually has more market share. So, but now if you look at the ones they're trying to go after, uh, robotics, artificial intelligence, quantum computing, they appear to be more or less at the same level that we are in quantum computing. Genomics, which is basically a biotechnology that's based upon gene manipulation. Aerospace, they have a state-owned enterprise called COMAC, Chinese something aerospace corporation, received billions and billions of dollars in subsidies, forced technology transfer from American and European companies, and now it is selling, or it's had commitments of sales of over 300, 250 planes or so, not just in China. Mm-hmm. And these are single aisle 737 equivalents, but think about what that's gonna do to Boeing. Because in a few years, Boeing will not, or Airbus, they won't be selling planes in China. And you think about building and designing a plane, the first plane costs like a lot of money. You need a big enough market yeah. to cover your development costs. Exactly, exactly right. And, and, that they, and, and that's one of the ways they've, 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 they've won, is that in many of these industries, they've in effect shrunk, shrunk the market yep. so that you can't really sell into yep. China, so therefore you're yep. not big enough to compete elsewhere. Exactly right. And they have this protected aircraft carrier, if you will, totally protected. They build up their market. They build up scale to cover their development costs. And then they go out to these other countries, massively subsidized with their export financing. And the whole goal, and this is why it's so important to understand, the whole goal is to take that profitable part of your business that you, you're, you're, you've done, you've paid off your development costs. Now you're selling everything's gravy. Their whole goal is to take that away so that you can't invest very much in the next round and the Chinese invest more. And then the round after that, you're out of business. Is this, uh, <clears throat> well, there's three or four, I've got so many different ways, way to take this. I mean, the, you mentioned at the outset, this is not the Soviet style top down, you know, five-year plan type economy. How do they, and, 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 and I had Bob Lighthizer on, trade representative, and he believes, and I think I've come to this view, there are no truly private companies in China. I mean, they're mostly public or private, but not really. And, and the big ones have all got somebody from the Chinese Communist Party either on the board or involved in Actually, management. even the middle-sized ones now even have, the have a CCP representative. Well, how do they maintain their... their the knock against that was where you get the government... Uh, hold it once. This is the Bill Walton Show, and I'm here with Rob Atkinson, who's... Uh, uh, one of our great thinkers about uh, technology and, and uh, information services and China, America's position in the world, and we're talking about China and how China can be competitive with uh, free market companies that are you know, working here in the United States with a top-down uh, Soviet, uh, Chinese communist-style uh, uh, leadership. I don't know. I don't, that was an elegant way to say it, but what... How does it work? I mean, you've got the, the party sitting in the room. You've got the entrepreneur in the room. How do they, how do they work together? So what the party does <clears throat> through lots of different vehicles, including what's called the NDRC, the National Development and Reform Commission, is they set targets. They set goals. So they say, I'll give you a good example. They said we should be the dominant player in the 
printer industry. Uh, so, you know, you have your printer, you know, you, you got your laptop, you want to print out some paper and print something. So they had a firm, um, and the firm was being sued by Lexmark and HP, the two major printer companies in the world, both American. They were being sued for patent violations. So their printer head, which is the most complex part of that, they had stolen it. <clears throat> Uh, they weren't going to win because they were being sued in Chinese court. Uh, you never win those cases. So the Chinese government said, they sent a letter to this company, I can't remember the name of the company, said, we want you to go out and buy a foreign printer company to become the globally dominant printer company in the world, and here's $3.5 billion. They then went and bought Lexmark. Lexmark shareholders were ecstatic because they paid something like 35 40% over market price. Mm-hmm. So, Bill, if you're the shareholder... <laughs> And somebody said, we're going to sell the company and, and you're going to get 40% pre- premium? Like, why wouldn't you do that? So they end up buying this company and now they're a globally dominant printer company. Now, imagine that going at, at step after step, industry after industry. So the government doesn't get in the hair of this, of this company and say, you know, we, you know, you decided you wanted to use this different color ink. You know, they don't, they don't get in the business like that. It's much higher level and strategic. Well, this is, well the Soviets set production quotas. Yeah, exactly. You're going to make X number of these things, yeah. and that's your number, of regardless right. of market demand right. or price. Right. The Chinese never do that. They learned their lesson from the Soviets. They never do that. The, the allocation in China is market-based. The production is state-influenced. That's, I think, the way to look at it. I think I read that the China has more billionaires uh, than we do. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the, the Chinese, they, they say they're communists. It's not like <laughs> communism the way the Soviets were, which was, you know, the, the, the apparatchiks made, had, had a nice car. Yeah. They don't mind billionaires. As long as you're doing the business of advancing state power, you're fine. That's what happened to Jack Ma, uh, the, the Alibaba billionaire, as Jack Ma started to say some things that the CCP didn't like, and, and he was punished, and everybody knew he was punished, and that was the signal. Don't criticize the CCP, and otherwise we'll let you make as much money as you want. So they don't need to use a heavy hand everywhere. They just pick somebody out, make them an example of this can happen to you. Right, exactly. And they do the same to us. So I'll give you an example. Uh, There's a One of our leading computer chip companies is a company called Micron, which is out of Idaho. And it was actually the venture funding of Micron, believe it or not, came from the potato magnate Simplot. Well, I know. Sure. Yeah, they had a lot of money. They got a lot of money. He's going, what am I going to do with my money if sure. potatoes are growing? Yeah. <laughs> so he funds Micron. Micron's this great company. There's three major memory chip companies in the world. Two are Korean, one is American. Yeah. Micron made the mistake of criticizing the Chinese because they had stolen Micron technology. Guess what happened? The Chinese government banned all Micron, uh, most Micron products being sold in China. So that's not just the punishment of Micron. That is a shot across the bow of every American company. Anybody selling into China has got to see that and say, just, just keep your mouth shut. Don't bring a don't bring a WTO case. Don't have the government do anything. Just shut up. What do you? Where do we? How do we think about the? I think we have almost a trillion, two trillion dollars invested in China, from largely U.S.-based companies, but also European companies from all over the world. And when we think about our business with China, it's not like we're all over here in the United States and we're exporting and whatever. We're in China. And you look at a company like Apple. I don't think Apple could exist without China. 
because everything's manufactured. So it seems like if we if we want to get tough with China, we're also getting tough on ourselves because we've got all that money invested there. So this thing, this this conundrum that is basically increasing China power and increasing dependence of America on China didn't happen overnight. Uh, the reason it happened is it was very gradual. They built up these ecosystems, and so they built up these eco these manufacturing ecosystems so powerful that you have to be there. It's a it's a black hole of of, of force that's drawing everybody in there, and so trying to reverse that, you can't do it in so a year. So if I'm running a tech company in in Palo Alto or wherever, and and I need to be in China because of the resources or the technology I have there, or is it? Well, something it else. depends. It, 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 number one, if you want to sell in China. <clears throat> yeah. I mean, think. look at what Tesla did. They, Tesla wanted to sell in China. So Tesla had to build a giant, incredibly modern factory in China. And you know what the deal was with Tesla? You build this factory and we'll give you subsidies. We don't mind. But the deal is you have to have almost all of your suppliers, Chinese firms, and you have to train them and teach them. So that's what Tesla did, and their supplier base got so sophisticated that now they're supplying Geely and, and all these other Chinese electric vehicle companies who now are the largest electric vehicle producer and in the Tesla's world. And Tesla's losing its market in China yes. to these Chinese companies that are using the technology developed and manufactured for Tesla. Right. That's how it works. Yeah, and, and it was obvious. They, don't, they, they let American companies in for a temporary reason. They're not like, so when we let sort of Siemens come in and, you know, build a factory here, it's like permanent because, hey, Siemens is going to help our economy. Or when we go and build a factory in, in Germany, it's temporary for them. It's like, I want to take as much of your capabilities. And once I've sucked that out of you, we don't need you anymore. And that's a time frame. That, that one of the issues that we have, and I'm having been unfortunate enough or fortunate enough to run a public company. You've, it's it's ridiculous. You've got this 90-day window where every quarter you get to report to your shareholders right. how you're doing. Right. And it's, it's, it's a crazy system because you're sitting there and you're thinking, well, yeah, I mean, stuff has happened in the last 90 days, but nothing that's very strategic and nothing that's going to require, you know, detail. Right. And yet that's the game. We're, and also I'm measured by my investors and whether my earnings went up or down two or three cents. Right. So we've got this incredibly sh narrow time frame that we're measured by, and also infinitesimal differences in outcome. You know, a few pennies a share doesn't really matter one way or the other, but the market reacts to it in a right. way that can really punish you. Right. China doesn't have that issue. No. no, no, no. So their time frame, you say take time to develop, that could be five to 10 years. It could be 20 years. Okay. So Comac, it'll be probably a 20-year money loser. Minimum. And now, why hasn't it gone out of business? Because the government just takes a wheelbarrow full of yuan and drives it up to the corporate headquarters and dumps it out. Okay. <laughs> so they're real. <laughs> Life is good if you're a billionaire in China. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> government's going to help. As long you. as you don't, long as you keep your mouth shut. Well, there's a, uh, you know, the so if we're if we're, again, I get the, you're giving me so much stunning information. I'm losing my train of thought here. Oh, I know where I wanted to go. Pharma. You said China is dominant, in, or U.S. is dominant in pharma. Well, don't we also now have an example of Merck building a billion-dollar R&D facility uh, just outside Beijing? Aren't we, aren't we, in effect, moving a lot of our pharma uh, to China? 
So one of the things, Bill, that I find most frustrating in Washington in this debate, it's like if I, if I, every time you decide you wanted to go somewhere, you go outside and I hit you in the head with a baseball bat. And you go, you know what, I'm going to try it again. Because what happened in the past, who cares? Maybe they'll miss this. Time. Maybe they'll miss. <laughs> so they did this in telecom equipment. They did it in solar panels. We had 65 60% of the solar panel market in 2000. We have 5%. China has 70%. They do it in industry after industry, and American companies think this time's different. So why are why is Merck or other companies doing that? I don't blame them for doing what they're doing because China's the fastest growing drug market in the world. What China says is if you want to sell us your drugs, if you want to be on the formulary, so have your drug prescribed, you have to build a factory here. Now that's a complete violation of the World Trade Organization rules, but what, you know, if you're a CEO, what are you supposed to do? And this is where I think, again, the government, the state has to come in and, and protect our companies from having to make that Hobson's choice. Well, we don't. We don't. I mean, I think <clears throat> I'm trying to, you help me out, but there's a, the Treasury Department has a group inside of it called CFIUS, right. which tracks investment in the United States. And originally, that was mainly for national security purposes, as investing in key technologies or industries that would be a threat to us. Now there's a now there's a more economic focus, but it's still primarily uh, secure national right. security driven. Right. And on the flip side, we're not doing anything, as far as, as far as I'm aware of, to track what's invested in China. Correct. We so we have no. If I thought the federal government were confident, I'd be more concerned. I don't think it particularly is, but it needs to be. Yeah. We don't know what's going on in China. Right. We meaning people in Washington no, that ought to be thinking about grand strategy. We don't. Yeah. So, first of all, on CFIUS. Probably you do. <laughs> it's, it's striking. I was talking to a colleague of mine the other day who knows a lot about a particular industry, and he was telling me that the Pentagon called him up and asked him this question, which... We're both like, so if you, if you kind of know something, you know, <clears throat> I won't say who, what the question was, but it was like a, just like, yeah, I can't really believe you asked that question. That was a question. It was so basic, you should know that. So to the, your, your point about does, how, how much capabilities the government have, it's not enough. Point with CFIUS, there's basically not an American company, at least in an important industry, that can go to China and not invest without a forced JV, joint venture. Joint venture. Why would we ever allow a Chinese company to invest in this country? Because we don't require joint ventures. So we, I, I'm, I'm all for CFIUS. I love it. But it needs to get beyond its military focus and just simply say no more Chinese investment in the U.S. Uh, well, you occupy an unusual spot in this whole debate because you've worked with every administration going back in the first Bush administration and then Obama uh, Clinton. and then Clinton. Clinton. So yeah. you've, you've worked and informate the information technology and innovation foundation, quick plug. This is Bill Walton show. And I'm here with uh, Rob Atkinson who's founder of the information technology and innovation foundation, which I've come to realize is probably the leading think tank that big companies and the U S government looks to, for answers to questions about what's really going on with investment in technology around the world. And so you're consulted by everybody. Uh, you know, think about it, put yourself in a position of a typical corporate CEO. You know, and I was one of those typical guys. 
you typically don't have the staff to 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 analyze something in the way your group does. I mean, what do you? I want to do a quick dive into how you operate that gives you such insight in, into what's going on. There's two kinds of think tanks, uh, if, if you will. One are based upon sort of area. You know, there's, our focus is Europe or this or particularly broad areas. We're really organized around, around, much more around technology verticals. So we know telecom, uh, wireless wireline in depth. We know biopharmaceutical industry in depth. We know advanced manufacturing in depth. Uh, we know electronics, IT, semiconductors, AI in depth. So that's, I think, frankly, if you, if you figuring out the policy is easy. Understanding the technology and the industry structure and the dynamics is a lot harder. And so if you don't have that, it's harder to sort of make sense of what's going on. So that's what we try to focus on. And so as we think about looking forward, there's a when you and I talked two, three years, four years ago, and I, I don't know how so much time slipped by because I learned so much when you come on. China was seen as a, a brutal competitor, but not necessarily a, 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 an enemy. And we still, there are a whole lot of people in the country that thought, well, if we just integrate and do more with China, we'll, we'll uh, live happily together and move on. Now, China's intentions have, be, have been revealed to almost everyone. Yeah. And so how is, uh, when you go about doing what you're doing and talking with people about what we ought to be doing with China, what's the state of play? So a couple of things. One, we're going to look back on this and we're going to, I think historians will say Xi Jinping made a huge mistake. There was a famous line that Deng Xiaoping yeah. had, which was, uh, hide your light and bide your time. Yeah. And why did he want to do that? Because he didn't want to give away the game. He didn't want to really say what the Chinese were all were doing, which was by 2049, their 100-year anniversary, when they took over China in a violent revolution, that their game was to dominate the world, including through technology and, and, and economics. Xi Jinping sort of put that out too soon. And so he got a lot of push. And there's now global pushback against what he's doing. He would have been way smarter. Just keep doing what he's doing. Don't say anything keep quiet, and he would have had another 10 years of, before people woke up. Now they've woken up. The problem is that there are people in Washington who will mouth that China's a problem, China's a challenge, but in their heart of hearts, they're like, well, if he leaves, maybe we'll get back to normal. Maybe there'll be a Western reformer. That's not going to happen. This is the, the Western reformers, it was always a means, not an end. They, they had to reform strategies because they thought it would get them ahead. Now Xi Jinping has more of an authoritarian, techno-authoritarianism because he thinks it's going to gain power. The other big mistake we make in the U.S. is, you know, we evaluate economic policy on does it lead to overall increase in economic welfare? Does it grow your GDP? China doesn't care about that. That's not what's going on there. What's going on there is does it lead to power? And that's a very different calculus. And so everybody says, oh, the Chinese economy is tanking and all that. Yeah, again, they'd rather it not tank. But as long as they're proceeding to win the battle, the war of these advanced industries, then you have, so finally the in the U.S., I would say in Washington, there's now a growing consensus that China's a problem. But what we lack are, I think, two things. One is we don't have a strategy. There's no strategy about how should we go about doing this. Um, 
you know, case in point is semiconductors. So we passed a law called the CHIPS Act. We give these companies incentives to build these very expensive uh, factories for making uh, computer chips because these other countries are giving them big incentives. But at the same time, we're not allowing American companies to sell some computer chips to China that they already can make. Like so I, yeah. why bother? Why bother? Yeah. I mean, I get you want to, you want to, there are choke points we have, fine, but selling them, not selling computer chips that they already can get, what have we done? We've just cut ourselves off. Well, the, we talked about this before we got on the air, but you talk about a camp that you just mentioned before, which is the people that, well, yeah, things are tough now, but G will go out of power and we can get back to doing business as usual. And I count among that a lot of my old friends on Wall Street and the banking business who, you know, J.P. Morgan and BlackRock and, uh, um, you know, Rid, Rain, uh, what is it, uh, oh, uh, DeLeo at uh, yeah. Bridgewater. Ray, and yeah. they, all, they all want, you know, this is going to pass. We're going to go back. I mean, Steve Schwarzman's funding Schwarzman scholars in Beijing. Yeah, He's yeah. got hundreds of millions of dollars yeah. of personal money yeah. in the country. Right. So they've not only got a business attachment, but a personal attachment yeah. to it. Yeah. They want all this to go away. Yeah, and Paulson, the same way. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Hank, Hank Paulson, yeah. the Treasury Secretary, yeah. made a fortune in, in China. Yeah. And still does. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's not conflicted, of course. No. Not at all. Or I'll go, I, There's a whole list of people. I'll, I'll be, I won't mention them all. So you've got that group. And then you've got the other side, which, you know, I have a lot of friends in this camp. China's terrible. China's evil. China is going to, you know, come after us. They're going to, they're, they're going to invade Taiwan and create a cataclysm there. We had to cut off all relationships with China, shut everything down, and isolate them, and that's the way we'll win. I don't think that, and but I'm thinking that based on kind of less information than you have. You don't think that either. Uh, it, first of all, the key thing of thinking about China is not to get all wrapped up in emotion but is to be in the foreign policy world, it was to be, there's a term in foreign policy of, of being a realist. So there's idealist foreign policy, which are, you know, our values. I just wrote a long article on why we need uh, uh, economic, foreign economic policy grounded in realism. And what I meant by that. The title and where is it? It's a, I can get you the title, but it's in a, it's in a journal here in D.C. called the, the International Economy. The name of the journal is okay, the International we'll, we'll put it on. We'll put it on. The, yeah. we'll get it and it there. was called a realist approach yeah. to economic. And what I meant by that was we should be thinking about our interactions with China only one lens. How do we, how do we slow them down and how do we speed us up? Everything else is irrelevant. So selling Tide detergent or Starbucks or Kentucky Fried Chicken, first of all, it's marginal. But at the end of the day, I, I want their money. You know, I want their money. Um, same thing with selling them commodity computer chips. If, if you look at the export control <clears throat> regime, the Biden administration came out. One of the one of the justifications for it was because you can use some of these technologies for facial recognition systems. We're not going to stop the Chinese from oppressing uh, their po certain populations. Or we're not going to we're not going to turn them into an enlightened democracy. Why would we hurt our companies? You know, it's the same thing where you say, well, we, we should not have we should not let Google go in. I would love Google to go in because I want them to take market share from Baidu, their major search engine. Mm -hmm. I want to take Chinese money because the less money they have is less that they can reinvest <clears throat> into their system. So we just have to be careful. 
At the same time, we want to, I do think we need to limit uh, investment in critical infrastructure and technologies in China. That's very different than selling them stuff that we make here and we want to sell to China. It's very different than investing in an advanced factory in China. That we have to really be thinking carefully about. But you need people thinking about that who know a lot about the technology, how things are manufactured, what the supply chains are. You need somebody who's been in business or in technology to really understand that. And the problem I think we've got is we've got very few people here in Washington that have a clue. That's correct. That's correct. I mean, the CHIPS Act's a great example. You've got all these people making these legislation, these staffers in the Hill writing this, that, and the other thing, all of them with lobbyists looking over their shoulder, maybe three or four of, of every line they write so that they make sure they get peace, what they want in each bill. It's a mess. It's well, a mess. I, I, there, let me... I think the one thing with... Okay, you're two, closer to it than I am. Yeah. May not that big, but I think from here it looks like a mess. There's two things with the CHIPS Act. One, there were a number of Republicans, and there would have been more if, if there wasn't for political... There are a number of Republicans who went out on a limb and said, look, we need to... Right, Senator Cornyn, for example, a Texan, a Republican, uh, sure. Senator Todd Young in Indiana, and they did this because of national security. There's no question if we go to war with Taiwan, they... If they wanted to cut off Taiwan chip exports to us for use, it would make COVID look like child's play. So we have to do it. The question, so I don't have, and the only way we're going to do it, frankly, is just, is just capital subsidies. That's what all these other countries do. You just have to say, you want to build a $15, $20 billion fab? We'll give you $3 billion. The state of Texas will give you $2 billion, and we'll help train your workers. So to do it more like the Chinese do it, we're not talking about an industrial policy that's directed by people in an office in Washington. We're really talking about allocating venture capital. Yeah, investment not, capital. Not getting into yeah. how the companies yeah. are run. or so The problem, I think, of what, what the administration has done is they, at the end of the day, the most important thing for the Biden administration, if you ask me, is, uh, is an equity agenda. And they use the infrastructure bill and the semiconductor, the CHIPS Act, and they infused it with their equity agenda. So, for example, we're mandated daycare centers. Oh, God. You know, at the end of the day, it's a minor little irritant, but are you kidding me? Oh, you mean equity meaning DEI, that yeah. equity? Yeah. The whole of government equity agenda, yeah. which, yeah. Is to, which is put this whole thing on top of... Yeah. Yeah, not not equity like in capital. No, the, no. I, I was thinking yeah. my venture. I was no, no, oh, no. Okay, no, equity. Kind of equity. <laughs> no, no. I was talking the other I was kind of equity. Money. Yeah, yeah. Oh, DEI equity. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Yeah. That's, and so that's, you know, that's, you, that's a catastrophe. Yeah, you, you know, you have to use union labor. Like, there's another one you couldn't do stock buybacks. Yeah. Look, if you don't like stock buybacks, fine. We can have some tax rule for it, but you don't impose these social policy things on your core industrial policy initiative. Yeah. They're two different things. And that, I think, has upset, uh, and rightly so, a number of Republicans. I think if we try to do this again, it wouldn't pass this time uh, because a lot of Republicans feel burned. Uh, like, hey, we did this. We took a risk because, you know, our party's sort of free market. We took a risk because we wanted to make sure that our national security was protected, and the administration politicized it. Then infused extent. it with the whole DEI yeah. equity agenda. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Well, if you go on the Treasury website and look at their 
strategic goals that Janet Yellen set for the Treasury. It's the DEI equity agenda. Yeah. And climate change, yeah. of course. Yeah. Um, right. I the term I use is green equity. Green equity. <laughs> okay. I like that. <laughs> that gets the whole, I like that. That captures the whole that agenda, is it. right? There. That is it. <laughs> Two words. Green, that, green, that is it. Green equity. Yeah. Okay. And I look, you know, I, look, I'm not, it's not like having, you know, higher wages for workers or, you know, better clean energy innovation. Cool. But at the end of the day, you have to pick your battles. What's the most important thing facing our country in the future? And it's the China competition. It's not these other issues. Well, the DEI agenda gets in the way of something that you and I've talked about, which is the, the notion of a meritocracy. And when you get the DEI um, screen put in everything, you, you tend not to look at things or people based on their merit. And, you know, we need the best and the brightest in these things, and we can't really have categories of people that have to have jobs. We need to have categories of people who are brilliant and get, the, get things done. So, Bill, you know, it's interesting you say that because back in the 80s when we faced the Japanese-German <laughs> challenge, big challenge, people forget that was a serious challenge. One of the reasons why we why we won is because you had a bipartisan Congress combined with Ronald Reagan and Bush, and they supported a whole set of policies like the R&D tax credit. But one of the things that came out of that era was this movement to create specialized math and science high schools around the country because the realization was if we don't have the best kids going into math, science, engineering, we're going to lose to the Japanese. So we created a whole bunch of them. Uh, including one here in Northern Virginia, where, near where we are now, called Thomas Jefferson. Incredible high school. But to get into Thomas Jefferson, you had to pass a test. You had to be the best and the brightest. And most of those kids ended up being Asian, either Southeast Asian, uh, Southern Asian from India or China or other countries, where their parents come here and they're like, hey, you got to work hard. No, no video games tonight for you. Uh, after the whole George Floyd thing in the movement, the county changed that, and now it's a lottery. Oh, my. Look, the purpose of that school is to get the best kids, yeah. funnel them into this program to teach them the best so they can go on to be the best scientists and engineers in our country. Well, we had Amy Chua on last week who wrote the Battle Hymn of the Tiger Mother and all about the Confucius uh, model of parenting. and. You know, they study. I don't know how many hours are in the week, but uh, that's about how many hours they study. And uh, she, she had a saying in the book we clipped out. Sarah did a cartoon about it. and talked, She wanted her daughters to be concert violinists and pianists. And she said, every minute you're not practicing is a minute you're getting worse. <laughs> yeah, that's the attitude. Which I thought was terrific. Yeah. But that's not the that's not going to let you win the lottery. I mean, right. uh, so that whole notion of merit and that's swept across all of government, a lot of a lot yeah. of big businesses. Yeah, yeah. And there are certain things that are, in my view, that are so important. And winning the techno economic race with China is that that we have to have a program of uh, not of equity of merit. We have to try to get the best people. To be focused on that. That doesn't mean that some of those people won't be diverse. It's not at all that. But you have to have merit be the driving force. Well, I want to wind up with that, with you explaining what we ought to put in place. Yeah. But before we do that, I want to get to the question that I worry about, which is Taiwan. 
China, you know, Chinese Communist Party designs on Taiwan. Taiwan is the semiconductor capital of the world. Um, we depend on it. They depend on it. Um, the island is not susceptible to traditional, you know, uh, you know, sending your troops to the beach and, and taking it over. There are no beaches in Taiwan, at least on the side that they'd want to attack from. What, what, how do you see that playing out? And did the Chinese understand that going to war and destroying Taiwan would destroy themselves? Or how do they, how do they win their, uh, their, their crown jewel that they're looking for? So I give you a little bit of my opinion, and it's only that because I focus really on industry and technology. And I, I, I have colleagues, I'm, I'm on this um, Eric Schmidt-funded thing called the Special Competitive Studies Program. Who's the CEO of Google. Yeah, was yeah. the CEO. But he's, he now, I, I really respect what Eric's doing. He's, he really sees China as the central threat, the pacing threat, as they would say. And he's organized this high-level commission uh, with a with a group focused on military, a group focused on intelligence, and then the group I'm on is is techno-economic competition. So I hear these folks talking about this. So I I can't really say anything. I don't think there's any question that China sees Taiwan as rightfully theirs. Uh, I think the only question is, will they just sort of wait until Taiwan gets tired, um, or will they use force? Um, and I don't think we know the answer to that. But I certainly wouldn't preclude. Uh, I, I think we should be prepared for them to use force. I don't. Again, I don't know what, what the odds are. People, some people say it's you know by the end of the decade that they're likely to do it. Um, the Chinese are irrational about this topic. It, it would be like if the Mexicans invaded uh, New Mexico. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we'd be pretty irrational about it. It's our country. Get the heck out. Uh, that's how they feel. And not not correctly in my view um but that's well it almost doesn't matter what i think about it i but i it, it does matter you, you i think him we're on the air or or not but you said that if you if if, if something happened in taiwan it'd be thought talk about things being shut down covid would be nothing yeah yeah i mean we would go black basically well we would uh what would happen, we, you know, the lights would still work, your computer would still work, but producing all these things that yeah. we need, uh, there'd be this massive shortage. And it, it, you're talking three years. Now, the, the good news, I think, is that the CHIPS Act, you know, there are now, there, there's concrete being poured as we speak, and there's going to be a lot more concrete being poured. If we can wait five years, we should be have a good buffer of ability to produce in the U.S., so... So, what what we do? To, what ought we to put in place to uh, bring about the things that we ought to bring about? I think there's really two or three main things. Number one, we have to. We talked earlier, Bill. You you had the, exactly the right point, which is you got to find a way to pay for your 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 development costs. We have to limit China's ability to get that money back, and the way to do it. Uh, I've been working with folks up on the Hill. Hopefully, we can get a legislation. There's a program we passed in 1930, and it gave the U.S. International Trade Commission the ability to block imports for 10 years. Uh, it's called Section 337. And unfortunately, a lot of problems with it, but you could easily fix it. with. And I laid out in a report all the legislative fixes you could do. I was talking to the CEO of a pretty major, probably $4 billion company in the Midwest, 
uh, and I was speaking to a group of manufacturers, and I mentioned this program. He said, oh, yeah, we were facing a Chinese competitor who had stolen our, our trade secrets. They were selling into the market, and we used this Section 337. It cost me $10 million, he said, but we got a 10-year exclusion order. And in other words, the Chinese company cannot sell into the U.S. for 10 years because mm. they had stolen this company's intellectual property and was competing unfairly. We need to ratchet that program up. That would work. That would work. Yeah. That's simple. Yeah. I'll give you another example. Caterpillar, uh, the, uh, the heavy equipment maker. Uh, 15 years ago, there were no Chinese companies in the top 10 in making heavy construction equipment. Now there are three. They're all state-backed. They're all subsidized. And to your point earlier, it's essentially a closed market. Mm-hmm. So the foreign companies can't make any money. I would n- and they're selling in the U.S. as we speak. I would never let those companies sell in the U.S. So we need to do that. We need to do that with our allies. So in other words, just cut off their, their, their ill-gotten gains, if you will. And the second thing we need to do, we, we, just need to make, we just need to do a better job of helping American companies. We have now the 32nd worst R&D tax credit in the world. When, when Reagan and Clinton were in office, it was number one. So when companies spend money on R&D, we should give them a credit, better credit. You know, one of the things that happened, as you're well aware of, Bill, in the tax, the 2018 Tax Act that President Trump um, championed, there was a really good provision in there, and it allowed companies to write off in their first year capital expenditures. You buy a $100 million machine, you can write it off. That's gone away. Craziest thing. We should just immediately restore that. So we want our companies to be investing in real capital equipment as well as R&D, and the tax code just makes that harder. So that's what we could do. Is there a third one? There's a third one, which is we should do a much better job of helping pre-competitive, early-stage, collaborative research with industries, with working with universities. So we have a program called Manufacturing USA Institutes, and they're a great system, and, and, and it's, they're company-led, the government puts in money, but the companies have to put their own cash on the table. Mm-hmm. So they're, and there are various universities around the country, things like uh, lightweight materials, uh, making biotech products without, a, you know, bat, like biotech drugs are made like beer, <laughs> a big bat. <laughs> <laughs> and the next big thing is, can you make them like a chemical factory flow? Yeah. And it's hard to do. So these, there's a consortium to try to do that. We need to do a lot more of that. The Chinese copied our program. They copied our program. It was our idea. We have 15 centers. They have 30, and they're funding them 10 times more than we So have. university research. With industry. Partners. With industry, partly funded by the federal government. Correct. Not all funded. We don't want the government to fund it all. Just some. Some. So we could actually accomplish all three of those things. So, I mean, I think of so many things we say, well, we ought to do this, but you're never going to get a bipartisan majority to do that. I think you ought to be able to do that. Absolutely. All three. All three. And you know the biggest, here. I'll tell you, here's the biggest barrier to all three. It's uh, OMB, the Office of Management and Budget, and the Congressional Budget Office. I'll give you an example. We did an analysis of the research and development tax credit. And what happens when you, when you do the R&D tax credit, companies spend more on R&D. Logical. We're giving you a tax break, so you're going to spend more. And all the studies show that. When they spend more on R&D, output goes up, productivity goes up. After 15 years, because every dollar of added output, 20 cents goes to the federal government. You know, GD, federal. Yeah, yeah. 
After 15 years, the R&D tax credit pays for itself. But the CBO window is five years. <laughs> so we've got, we've got some accountants. Yeah. And I say that as a yeah. former recovering accounting major. Yeah. They're saying, well, yeah. no, we can't go out 15 yeah. years. Yeah. That's too long a horizon. Yeah. But the U.S. can go 50 years. We're, we're not, a, we're, you know, we're not we can, a company that has capital shortages. And we have a budget problem. But yeah. we should be budgeting for 15 years like that. Well, I love, finally, after many, many shows, not not with you, with other people, I said, what are good lines of action? We finally have three we could actually do. Yeah. The first <laughs> one costs no money. Even That's better. Here, I'll give you an example. And Bob, Bob Lighthizer, I know has talked about this. I'll give you, in that thing, if you want to bring one of these 337 cases, yeah, you have to show that you've actually suffered material harm as a company. So there is a company in Illinois uh, called Illinois Toolworks. Same issue, facing two Chinese competitors, stolen their IP, unfairly competing. They brought a 337 case. They won the first part, which was to say, yes, this is completely unfair. But they didn't win an exclusion order because the Chinese were taking the growth of the market. This oh, company's right. sales were stagnant, so they, they didn't suffer material harm. What planet are we living on? Yeah, that's crazy. So just change that. Congress I'm, could change I'm, that. I'm glad they're still more. around. I used to be their banker 45 years ago. Really? Yeah. <laughs> they may not be alive. <laughs> I know. <laughs> oh, my God. What bad thinking is keeping us from doing the right thing? Well, Rob, thank you. This is great. Oh, my pleasure. Really, as I'm always, really, uh, I wanted to keep this show bite-sized because I want to have you back because there are about 53 things we didn't get to explore. Uh, this has been the Bill Walton Show. I've been here with Rob Atkinson, who's founder of the uh, uh, Information Technology and Innovation Foundation, which is the go-to shop if you want to understand uh, uh, technology and entrepreneurship and how to how to protect American uh, wealth creation. I guess that's a, one way to put it. Uh, anyway, thanks for joining. And uh, as always, you can find all of our shows on all the major podcast platforms and on YouTube and Rumble. Um, Substack, and we're also now on CPAC. We're on CPAC now on Monday nights. Please subscribe. Go to the Substack uh, uh, site and, and subscribe to the show. And if you have some like-minded friends that want to learn about complicated things and understand what we can actually do about it, this is the show to be watching. So anyway, thanks for joining, and uh, we'll be back with you soon. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Want more? Click the subscribe button or head over to thebillwaltonshow.com to choose from over 100 episodes. You can also learn more about our guest on our Interesting People page. And send us your comments. We read everyone and your thoughts help us guide the show. If it's easier for you to listen, check out our podcast page and subscribe there. In return, we'll keep you informed about what's true, what's right, and what's next. Thanks for joining.